Greetings, friends. Welcome to another session of the Crypto Corner brought to you by Navic. I'm your host, Alex Decay, And today I'm very excited to welcome Yatsiu, founder and current board member of Animoca Brands, the Hong Kong venture capital firm we all know best for having one of the most expansive cryptocurrency and blockchain gaming related portfolios in the world. Backers of the legendary CryptoKitties, Axie Infinity, Sandbox, OpenSea, Dapper Labs, and many, many more. Animoca was given a valuation around $5.4 billion and total capital raised around $700 million in 2022. And it could be more at this point. But um, welcome to the podcast, Yacht. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. And I'm glad to be connecting under different circumstances this time around. I know last time we chatted, it was over dinner at Fleming's in Palo Alto. You were stuck in America due to COVID travel restrictions. So That's I hope right. it's a new year. Uh, yes. worst, hopefully the worst is behind us. Are you in? Uh, are you I'm in back Hong in now? Hong Kong. I'm back in Hong Kong, uh, mm-hmm. traveling a lot still, but it's, it's been good. Uh, and Hong Kong has also lifted the travel restrictions. So no more sort of uh, sort of quarantine restrictions the same way. You know, you can't go to restaurants for the first three days, but you can stay home and everything. So it's it's much more relaxed. So mm, that's great. Yeah, I think like what a what a interesting time. I kind of think back on it, and I'm like, I can't believe that really happened. Um, yes. I, truly, I can't believe it happened. Um, and I also remember asking you some very contrarian questions at the time. I I think. I remember us debating whether or not the players made the world of Warcraft or the developers sitting yes. at Blizzard made the world of Warcraft. And so, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, and I, lo- I love contrarian questions because it's the best way to make us think about these things, right? Right, right. Um, so I think that was made for an entertaining discussion for everybody else at the table, I'm sure. So, um, but today, I think um, instead of asking sort of these, uh, you know, thesis level questions about who makes the games or who doesn't make the game or whether or not Web3 or the metaverse is the right thing to do, I want to talk a little bit more about Animoca's story, um, the thesis they've been deploying capital against its mission, the investing style, markets maybe. I know you've done a ton of talks vouching for the creation of the metaverse and digital identity, but you know many of our listeners right now are Web3 companies who already believe that this is the right direction to move in, um, or investors trying to find the right companies to back. So you know, before we kind of start, can you just sort of share what's, what was going through your mind in 2014 when you decided to found Animoca Brands? And if I did my research correctly, Animoca, which is not to be confused with Animoca Brands, started as a mobile-driven developer. So what sort of, what sort of happened? Yeah. So actually, the, background, the history of Animoca itself really started in 2011, or actually maybe even uh, earlier than that. Uh, one of the things that, uh, so I had just sold um, our sort of our, uh, a business to IBM, which was basically an enterprise messaging. And that was in 2000. And uh, well, it was in 2008, but the closing happened in 2009. And like with anything that with, happens with big companies like IBM, Effectively, the period was like a two-year type of close <laughs> in terms of processes and structures and everything that, like that. Uh, and of course, during that time, I also had a non-compete, so I could mm. no longer go into enterprise. I had a history in gaming, <clears throat> and we actually had uh, within the group basically some gaming elements. So we basically spun that out into a business called uh, Animoca, and that was in and really happened serendipitously because I was actually asking our team to build a. Uh, an, app, an app basically for, so I was a young father and I basically was carrying around these ridiculous uh, sort of flashcards. Uh, and for every parent, they would know you'd have to carry these flashcards and they're made out of sort of cardboard. And, you know, you know, you know, your, your, your toddler will go over them in like, you know, two minutes. 
So then you end up carrying around like 300 of them. <laughs> you literally carry a bag with them. So, so that's ridiculous. Why don't we just put this on, on the phone? But remember, this was 2010 at that point, actually 2009 at that point. And 2009, 2010, you know, the iPhone was a fairly expensive device. So, so most people didn't think that was a good idea to, to give a toddler a, um, a, a sort of, you know, uh, 1,000 or 1,500 mm-hmm. US dollar device. Um, but anyway, they made it because, you know, I just asked for it and, and it certainly solved my problem. Uh, and then, you know, you know, for a short time afterwards, uh, the developers came back to me and said, hey, do you know what happened to the, this uh, baby flashcard app? We were the first free baby flashcard app on the App Store. Uh, aptly named Baby Flashcards. And, and, uh, and uh, we, um, uh, it was like millions of downloads already. And of course, back then, that was a huge number. So that sort of piqued our interest in terms of, well, interesting, the smartphone, what's happening there? You know, what's, what's going on with the App Store and so on? And that actually led to the beginning of us actually entering basically mobile app development, initially in education, mm. but then actually moving full into gaming and we launched one of the, I guess, you know, in 2011, we were one of the biggest mobile phone game developers in smartphone, uh, you know, which, which uh, with, with a title called Pretty Pet Salon and later on Stargirl. So we, we really, uh, so I guess, pioneered the space in Asia. But then in early 2012, and sort of this is a, an interesting backstory because it led to some of our thinking where we are today, Apple deplatformed us. <clears throat> so we had figured out that when mm. we actually launch an app a week, we would be able to always have our apps rank, right? Because if those of you who remember back in the day, Apple had a very, very primitive ranking algorithm. So cross-referral was a great way to basically create a way in which your apps would always be on top. So we basically just went ahead and launched, um, you know, almost an app a week uh, if we could. And of course, one perspective could be saying, well, that's kind of growth hacking and maybe that's abusing the uh, app store ecosystem. It's possible, right? But there was no rule per se saying that we couldn't do that. Um, but instead of Apple giving us a call and saying, you know what, uh, we don't appreciate this, you need to change your business practices or else, they just removed all of our apps. And in January of 2012, our entire business was toast. Uh, and then oh, that removed us. Yeah. So you, you can search it up. Apple's if you search up, at it again. <laughs> Apple's at it again, right? It's um, at it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and we, it took us almost a year and a half to get back on the App Store when finally they decided that China was an important market and they had to go to Asia and then they looked for developers. At that point, we had pivoted completely into Android. Uh, but sort of, so that was sort of one of the first experiences, big, big experiences about what it feels like to be deplatformed and to be entirely dependent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had, I had grown up in sort of the age of open source, you know, I had built one of Hong Kong's very first internet service providers. For me, uh, this idea of sort of, you know, open information, free information, and sort of really Web1 was effectively uh, sort of decentralized information, decentralized access, uh, was, was sort of a big shock as to what was going on there. But nevertheless, we continued to make mobile games. That was a little bit of a struggle because it took a while for us to get back in, 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 in sort of a leadership position. Uh, but we, you know, we had acquired companies with capabilities. And one of the companies that we had um, uh, acquired was a small studio in Vancouver called Fuel Powered that happened to share an office with another company called Axiom Zen. And they were developing this little thing called CryptoKitties. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, this was, uh, and, and Fuel was on the gaming side. And Axiom was basically on the sort of uh, ecosystem, sort of, you know, technology side and had basically created sort of ERC721. And, and uh, when that launched, uh, we're just like, wait a second, this is really interesting. And, you know, we, we were not crypto OGs in the sense that, you know, we didn't start with Bitcoin mining. We, we weren't involved in the technology sure. back from, from, from the early days. 
Uh, we understood it and, you know, we experimented with it, but really more from an academic perspective because it was very financial in nature. And that really wasn't attractive to us in the same way, right? It felt very Wall Street to us, shall we say. But then when CryptoKitties came around, uh, that sort of really sort of awakened our sort of perspectives and imagination as to initially ownership on gaming items, but then eventually this entire thinking around digital property rights. But you got to remember also in, you know, when this really sort of, uh, when we really started getting this full force, which was late 2017 at the birth of CryptoKitties and um, um, sort of 2018, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the general crypto market was at you know, an absolute meltdown. Right? And for those who, you know, I mean, everyone probably on your channel will have experienced this already, but, you know, that was a real, real winter or an ice age, you know, if you want to, want to say, right? I mean, Bitcoin was like at $3,000, ETH was floating in the low hundreds, right? It was, it was a really, really rough time. But for us, it was great because, you know, we didn't have, we didn't come with that legacy. We just said, hey, this is a great space. We need to build it up. And one of the things to build up the space that we decided to do was we had to invest in it because there were so few, few builders in the space. Mm. And that's when we started investing in 2018, 2019 in companies like uh, Sandbox and, and Axie Infinity and Wax and Decentraland. And eventually it led to the acquisition of Sandbox and all those um, companies because we had this conviction <clears throat> that digital ownership was going to be really, really important initially in the world of games, but then actually beyond, right? So that's 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 how it started. And, um, you know, in terms of Animoca, the sort of belief really is that it's really going back to this principle of open source. So I used to make presentations around the similarities around what I felt blockchain was in terms of, I guess, sort of decentralizing value or stores of value, if you will, uh, versus, say, decentralizing information or access to that information. No, if you know, and, and sort of the mental model I had in mind, well, imagine if we were actually able to translate the value that open source was able to deliver to its creators. Well, then it would have a, it would create a completely different paradigm, right? Because after all, the people who wrote some of that initial code that eventually would lead to companies like Huawei or Lenovo or actually mm-hmm. even blockchain technology, everything, right? They all contributed to this, but the value they received was basically in kind, as it were, right? And, and it wasn't really, um, you know, a way to translate that. And, mm-hmm. and tokenization offered a way because now you could claim a, you know, a kind of property in the intellectual sort of stuff that you built. And that was, that was sort of the model we had in mind. And so when we were thinking, well, what's the way to do this? Uh, who were the big winners, really, when you think about sort of the open source movement? It wasn't necessarily the, I mean, yes, entrepreneurs and, you know, but if you were a good engineer building an open source, you had a great sort of, you know, you had a great repo and everyone's like, hey, I, I want to hire you. That was the way that you got uh, sort of recognition Notoriety, and success. Yeah. Right. You're like, oh, I can hire you. And, and you would then be employed for maybe a good salary and maybe good stock options and so on. Right. Um, but actually, the ones who re- uh, received outsized returns turned out to be the VCs who were backing the companies that were actually taking advantage of open source. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yes, maybe they contributed back to open source, but really... You know, yes, it's the founder and it's the engineers, but the, the way in which you can sort of grow and sort of have the sort of exponential growth of, of knowledge and, I guess, code explosion would not have been possible without open, without open source. So, so the beneficiary of that layer actually were people who invested in, in those ecosystems uh, as well, right? And, and, and actually, in so doing, furthered the ecosystem because if there was no VC capital, then, you know, there wouldn't be that many engineers that were developing these products and there wouldn't be as much contribution going into open source, right? All these things basically sort of, you know, pile on top of each other. So how would that work in Web3? So the assumption we made is, well, okay, very similar to open source, 
actually um, um, sort of, you know, Web3 uh, in, this, in, in this context um, is actually um, a, a similar shared network effect, but it's a shared network effect of ownership and value, right? And therefore, you know, in order to participate in this, just like with open source, you can't monopolize it. Uh, and, and in fact, that was kind of against our own sort of, uh, sort of feeling anyway. So we said, well, then we should invest in an ecosystem that can build network effects on top of each other. So the thesis was basically born that, you know, you know first of all, the emphasis was digital property rights, because we think of that as fundamental. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you see us talking about it all the time. But really what it then means is that generally we want to basically invest in things that either enhance the network effects of these problems, uh, digital property or grow the space as a whole, right? Uh, and I remember in our very first pitches, this was in 2018, 2019, it was pretty difficult to raise money back then. You know, one of them came to us and one, one VC uh, and almost no, actually almost no classic VCs invested in us because it was really such an unusual thesis to sort of, you know, participate in a broader ecosystem while we're building it as well, right? Because we have our own operating businesses like Sandbox or Phantom Galaxies, and then we're also, sure. you know, investing. And that was something that, uh, that you know, was very sort of untypical uh, because it's like, what are you? Are you a VC or are you an operator or a builder? That's just kind of make, doesn't make sense. And when we presented the thesis, it's like, you sound a little bit like a foundation and foundations don't make money. So we're not going to invest, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and I understand the, I guess I understand the sentiment because when you grow an ecosystem, like say, for instance, if you're a Nash, if you're, if you're sort of, I know, like a, like a, like a foundation structure, then you're not supposed to profit from this. But I think this is different here mm. because we're, we, we believe that as a value, you know, is shared and creates a network effect then actually uh, the network of our investments should also do well. But, and, and this is the thing about being an operating business, that even if the investment doesn't work out, maybe in terms of a big capital return, the business and the economic activity it generates for operating businesses should actually be uh, you know, big enough, right? So when mm -hmm. we made our investment in OpenSea, for instance, back in, you know, in, in actually late 2018 and, and, and 2019, it wasn't because we were hoping it would be worth what it is today. I mean, it's incredible in terms of its success and, and, and sort of the, the values generated for the group. But what really it was about, you know, selling our assets on OpenSea and having a way in which we could collaborate with them more closer, which was, you know, initially with Sandbox, sure. and, you know, with our rev assets and so on. And eventually it grew to that. And now all of our, other, our portfolios can also benefit from that relationship, for instance, right? So that's, that's sort of an example um, of that. So, so, but that means also that whatever we invest in must be essentially an open sort of digital asset, as in it needs to generally be, you know, uh, you know, involving NFTs and blockchain. Got it. Got it. Well, it's first of all crazy story. I was about to ask what your very first blockchain investment was and whether or not it was CryptoKitties, and it kind of sounds like it was because it was, just a yes. uh, auspicious turn of fate uh, where you guys were happened to be co-located physically in the same office, which is kind of crazy if you think about that stroke of luck. Um, yes. But so many interesting things to react to in what you said. And so there are two sort of main things that I want to follow up on is that, you know, one, you talked a lot about this digital property rights um, and, and delivering that. And right. And so I guess how is Animoca actually navigating the digital property rights with the definition of the legal property right and the challenges of conferring sort of copyright and commercial rights and ownership. I think a lot of people haven't really quite figured this out yet, but I think, I don't know, I was reading yeah. this article about a bunch of different NFT lines like nouns and board apes that are all doing and conferring 
copyright or IP through the collective commons or through commercial rights. And so how does Animoca perceive this challenge and how do they help your current portfolio companies actually navigate that towards their users? Yeah, so I think, first of all, uh, digital property rights is actually a contractual thing in most laws today, I think in all laws today, right? So in other words, it doesn't have the same status as your physical property rights, but that is changing. So for instance, Mm. the UK and Hong Kong is now actually assessing and reviewing actually what digital property rights means. And one simple example of this could be, you know, if someone stole your Bitcoin, then do you have a legal claim against it? And actually, I would say most jurisdictions would say, actually, you do, right? Because Mm -hmm. there is value, even if it isn't something specifically in law, um, you know, that it's because it's in digital format. Most people can now recognize that this is actually an asset that would belong to someone and therefore had to be returned if you can prove that it was stolen, for instance, right? So there, there are elements around that that's already sort of there in the sort of traditional law, but it's missing a lot of core elements of this, right? And, and one of those elements, for instance, affect things like, you know, NFT royalties, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's no legal agreements attached to it. Because there are some interesting questions around this, right? Which is, for instance, that if you actually own an NFT and some people are debating, for instance, a kind of, you know, clawback that if you were going to sort of, uh, uh, sort of not pay royalties, then we can basically sort of, you know, maybe destroy your NFT, for instance, or something like that, right? And, yeah, that's, a, yeah. and, and, and that's a very radical version. But, but the thing is that if a third party can, for instance, destroy something that you own because maybe you didn't transact it in a manner that the creator uh, sort of... Uh, that uh, sounds uh, so like Apple you so? delisting you. Correct, correct, right? So that basically <laughs> is actually a different kind of centralization. And more importantly, you never really own it, right? So the principle that we're guided by essentially is that you know, this idea of freedom to transact is one that I may, you know, I have the freedom to deny you service if you basically abuse it, but I don't have the freedom to take it away from you. It's still yours, for instance, right? Um, and I, you know, and, and I have the freedom to transact it with any other party that actually wishes to transact in a certain manner if that's what, if they so choose to. It just, you know, we as a platform may say, well, if you haven't paid your royalties slash taxes, then you can't enjoy the benefits of what I'm giving you. That's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we can revoke your ownership, right? And so, so we've crafted basically a, a license uh, agreement structure that uh, we've now basically uh, made open source as a draft and let, let basically under, under a Creative Commons license and basically let uh, other people go out and sort of edit it and use it. And, you know, we're sharing it. We shared this with our, our portfolio partners. I think actually, in fact, just today, Cool Cats announced that they're using a, a version of our IP license uh, and and actually, the other thing that uh, comes in that essentially is that in that IP license structure, that if a person, um, you know, if, if a platform, in this case, a marketplace actually does not honor um, the royalties, mm-hmm. then very similarly to so what happened to, you know, the Napsters of, 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 of the old days, then actually they become liable because they've enabled essentially that transaction. So forcing essentially the marketplaces to become good actors, because one of the problems is that marketplaces were actually, some of them were we're actually trying to sure. gain market share with by like basically magic, sort of yeah. doing by lowering on yeah, price, by do, yeah. by, by doing by doing no royalties. Except yep. it's not on their cost; it's on the cost of the creators, right? Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah. but I think the yeah yeah. But I think the big thing around property rights and and why it has to be as open and and free and composable as possible is that only through the freedom of these assets can you construct these incredible network effects. Because the moment you put restrictions on it you then start to disable the ability for third parties to actually build stuff freely on top of it. Uh, and that's why we're so excited about digital property rights. Uh, and because, because if you think about all of our physical ownership of things, 
actually it's the freedom for third parties to actually build on top of them that is sort of creates the not just enhances the value of these assets but enhances the utility and actually becomes you know becomes a platform for growth mm-hmm. and innovation as well i mean think of you know everything you own like your car for instance or the house you own or even you know your smartphone that you own the sort of ecosystem around it that makes it a better experience is all provided by third parties in an entirely permissionless manner probably you have a case for your phone probably you have headphones for your phone right probably you have you know uh, sort of other decorative items on top of just the fact that you own this phone that was not made by apple or by samsung and created an ecosystem that allowed you to express yourself Uh, you know the automobile industry is a great example of that because the number of people employed around the ownership of cars is far far greater than actually the selling of the cars in and of itself and and if you always had to go back and seek permission from say tesla or from you know from volkswagen to do a change to the car like a baby seat or leather seats or hiring a driver or you know sure. launching uber and you'd have to seek permission from that every single time then it stifles innovation and also the ability to do something because even they might say well i don't want this so um it doesn't suit our business i want you to buy more cars i don't want you to get more utility for the car for instance right but you know the interesting flywheel then is that actually because as a result the car becomes very very valuable in other ways the car first was invented as you know a replacement for the horse and you know when you look at the classic sort of you know ford model t they all look the same they were all black i think and they all did one thing really well take you from one point to another point today we buy cars for many reasons um and most of them is not actually because we want something that looks like a ford model t that can take us from point a to point b that is the base utility but we buy it for status we buy it because we like the look we got how it makes us feel right and so the the vast value of everything that we purchase today comes from that expanded utility which could be viewed as an expanded network effect And so we want the same for digital property. Got it, got it. And so it sounds like you know you're assisting portfolio companies in constructing that um, digital property rights, whether or not it's through something like the Creative Commons or some sort of you know IP template. And that you said that maybe yes. Cool Cats is actually <clears throat> currently deploying, right? Um, yes. In that regard, it sounds like Animoca is, is is supporting a lot of their portfolio companies that way. And like last I sort of checked, you you know you employ like 700 people across all these subsidiaries. It's, How is uh, over over 900 now? over 900 now wow and so how do you guys organize to figure out you know who supports portfolio companies who's kind of working on the investments you know right now you're slightly larger than Andreessen and Andreessen of course is not a foundation um or well, we're not a foundation either just to I know be you're clear. not a foundation <laughs> as well but you know not even can it be yes. misconstrued as a foundation because they don't have an operating business so how yes. do you kind of organize your actual um you know corporation uh, yeah. to actually best support portfolio companies and also continue the operating experience or operating expertise that you do. So first of all, I mean I think we are you know quite different from Andreessen, I think, um, although I don't know the inner workings of their organization that well because we don't we're not a fund. Right? So I, th- I think so 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 mm-hmm. so that means that the way that we operate has a, a sort of a, goes for slightly different outcomes. As a fund you have to basically you know really seek to deliver returns on the investments you make which is mm. fair right absolutely we we obviously we hope to not lose money on our investment either but because we invest out of balance sheet uh we can take a very different horizon in terms of sort of the long term view like we can literally sort of if this takes 10 20 years it's not a problem for us uh, and the second thing is that we seek for sort of network effects that come from it as an outcome as well uh 
rather than looking for, for instance, um, you know, the, the singular success of a, a single company we invested in in terms of its capital returns, because that's where, you know, your function should come from, right? If you're VC, ah. you're actually trying to invest, really, you're trying to find winners, right? Um, which makes sense, right? Because you may not have the attention to go invest in, you know, hundreds of companies, for instance, and, and do that, which, by the way, we have the same struggle. I mean, if you want us to put the same level of attention to every company, that would be impossible unless we scaled our operations a certain way. Right. Um, but where the network effects come into play for us and precisely where, you know, blockchain and Web3 is so attractive is that you can do so in a permissionless manner, meaning that, you know, in Web2, the sort of idea of creating, let's call it synergies. <laughs> it's a very McKinsey thing, right? Or, or partnerships as it were, right? It requires a lot of additional work. I mean, I, I believe you were at Activision, right? Yeah, was Blizzard. Yes, yeah, exactly. At Blizzard. That's right. So if Blizzard was going to be working with some other game studio, which rarely, it probably never happens, but just well, we that just cancel this partnership with Netty. So yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but 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 even then, right? You you know, it's a it's a partnership. It's a contract. You have to open special APIs. You have to give Absolutely. them access. It's a lot of work because everything is proprietary and custom. It yes. has to be adapted for each partner. So there's an incredible amount of friction to make that happen, which is why you know in Web two you can't do that. But in Web three. The paradigm of ownership means that, you know, if you own a board ape, for instance, or another deed or a cool cat, you can actually just own it and you can do other things with it and just move them in, in different places and, and, and create, you know, partnerships either in collaboration or maybe even outside of the collaboration, right? So, you know, so for instance, you know, um, you know, uh, if you look at one of our companies, um, sort of, um, sort of Arivo, what they do is they actually print, um, they literally print, um, sort of carbon bicycles. And now what they can do is you can take an NFT and they can print a carbon bicycle based on the NFT. All right, fine. That's kind of cool, right? But that partnership doesn't need the permission from Yuga or from Cool Cats, for instance, to do it. All it needs to do is go to the customer who owns a board ape or customer who owns a, a sort of a Cool Cat and say, I can make you a custom bicycle um, that's you know beautiful and made out of carbon simply by you basically just proving that you own it through, you know, an on-chain transaction. And then we'll mint this particular version for you as a physical bike and ship it to you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and obviously, you know, the fact that these are our portfolio will get their endorsement, but they don't have to do a partnership agreement, right? It's much easier to build those type of uh, relationships. Uh, cool Cats just launched, for instance, uh, FC Cool Cat, which is basically, yep. you know, homage to the World Cup, right? And this was a sort of a conglomerate partnership between ourselves uh, one football uh, and Cool Cat, all of them are basically sort of portfolio companies of ours in which they came together to basically launch a new product. And again, you know, it was uh, it was much more smoother and much more faster to put together than any any other kind of partnership that would normally be the case in Web two. Because not only do you need to figure out the contract, then you have to open the API and you have to do all this technical integration, all that kind of stuff, which you don't have to do. So it's much much easier. So we do have, of course, a team of people. Uh, that focus on it. We were split up really between the group activity and the ventures activity. And the group itself basically has people who really sort of try to assist um, sort of the teams. We're, we've started having portfolio days. Uh, we also have basically, you know, basically sort of mass Zoom webinar type of things where people can come together and present. You know, we started doing that as well. Um, but really, I think our, our, our goal has a little bit of that sort of, I guess, ecosystem goal, which means that it's not as important that we give the same level of attention to every other business. Um, we basically just allow them to participate and you know, uh, partake in the network. And if they come to us with something they need, we can give them access. 
Or if we see an opportunity, we connect them. But it happens much more organically than something you know, where, where there's you know, one portfolio manager that is responsible for these 10 companies mm-hmm. and then sort of does something mm-hmm. with them. It's, 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 not, it's not quite the same. Also, you'll notice that the way we like to invest is very different from other investors because of the fact that they need to get the best returns. If you think this is going to be you know, the best companies in sliced bread, then it makes sense for you to have you know, an oversized position in that company. You want to basically take as much as you can of that stake of the company because it's just so great, right? It makes sense. Uh, but that also means that the amount of work you need to work with them is different. Whereas in our case, you'll notice that when we make an investment, typically it's us and like 15 others. Right? Sure. You know, like we, we, we love us the style where we come together because the founder can't just rely on us. As a, you know, no matter how big a VC you are, we always believe that the more, you know, friends slash investors you have in your ecosystem, the more support you'll get and build network effects from this. We even do this with the group companies, right? If you look at, for instance, Sandbox, it's a subsidiary of ours. But we brought in third-party investors like TGV and Hashed and, and SoftBank and you know Kingsway, LCV. All those guys would participate as well because they become information access points and ways in which the business can grow above and beyond what we can you know we'd be able to provide. Right. So so that's kind of the the, the approach we uh, we take. Got it. Yeah, and I think that answers a lot of the questions. I think for putting my VC hat on, you know, I look at. Um, a lot of some of your companies uh, are competitors to one another, uh, in a way, I would think. And so, mm-hmm. I think as a venture capitalist, uh, there's that's definitely in the like the usually in the no go zone. It's again, a, you know, loosely defined what competitor means, but uh, you know, you have the sandbox, and you're also in partnership with other side and Yuga Labs, and ostensibly those two groups are doing quite similar things. And so if you want one to be the unicorn that returns the fund, you wouldn't want to be assisting the other unicorn to potentially outpace your unicorn. Um, And so this kind of explains a lot of why your investing strategy is a little bit different than a venture capitalist, right? Because you're sort of like trying to lift the ocean rather than find the one winner in that. We also don't believe you can find the one winner in Web3. So because Mm -hmm. of the fact that there's a shared network effect. So that means that, uh, in fact, for instance, um, when Axie Infinity, which you know arguably could be viewed as a competitor to you know even some of our own games we're building on top sure. of basically you know everything else we've invested in, I think of the 380 plus companies we've invested in, almost a third is in gaming, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. uh, you know, and, and so so you might say, well, about these all competitors or what is this? You know, uh, but actually, when Axie grew really big, what happened was it, it lifted the entire game fight industry. Right. So many companies basically emerged because the same customers who were basically playing Axie would then start playing other sort of blockchain games as well and experiment and try them out and, and sort of and, and, and do things because they could freely move their assets around. They could take it out and they could take their value out and they could buy something else. And that's also the reasons why, you know, we're fairly prolific investors in guilds, for instance. Right? Guilds in and of itself may not be considered, you know, perhaps as the sort of best investment um, in terms of you know pure return, because actually the barrier to entry isn't very high, but they serve a really important purpose. They onboard customers, right? They bring basically business to to both the you know the, the consumer as well as the um, sort of a platform or game that's being provided, and they also train people. So they're mass onboarding mechanism. So us making investments in them, fueling that growth, is imp- an important way in which we grow the entire ecosystem, and they also disperse customers around different games, for instance, right? So, so it's again, it goes back to this early example I gave to open source, right? It's like, if you take the root of these things, actually, you could probably point 
some way in which the value of some open source code that was made many years ago, unrelated to where the outcome is, actually still gain a benefit. It may not necessarily have uh, proportionally the same benefit. Like, you know, it could be that a game launched later might actually have a much better return than a game that has been around for five years. That's entirely possible. Mm. However, the game that came uh, sort of later wouldn't actually probably be as big a game if it wasn't for the fact that this game existed five years before, right? Um, so, 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 and, and, and in the past, people would look at this as competitive and we think of this as actually really more sort of building the foundations for this sort of, um, sort of a shared network effect. I see. Interesting. And so in that regard, you mentioned Axie and obviously everybody knows that, that, that company now at this point, right? Sure. When you saw, first saw Axie or any other blockchain company, if you're not looking for the unicorn, right? What, how are you due diligence, diligence, diligencing the company, right? Is it mostly because you believe that there will have that network effect? So, you know, sort of what is the yeah. Animoco so way the, in evaluating? Yeah, I mean, outside of, in, cla- yeah, so outside of, so first of all, you have to remember back in 2018, 2019, you know, first of all, you know, revenues and financials and numbers were pretty sparse in the sense that they were mostly pre-revenue type companies, right? Uh, I think when we invested in Axie, I think they were doing their first $250,000 in revenue at the time. Uh, and I think with OpenSea, I think, you know, I think we, they hadn't even hit a million dollars of monthly, <laughs> of, of monthly, of monthly GMB, right? So, so those were pretty early days. So then, uh, but those are obviously seed, uh, seed stage uh, style investments. And, and when you look at that, then you really have to look at the people and the ethos. Obviously the technology and so on is a part of it, but it's, are they able to build community? You know, are they, do they believe in this uh, ecosystem? Are they sort of people who care about this stuff? And I think generally speaking, you know, from an ethos perspective, uh, we have, um, I think we've, we've picked people who f- feel similarly to our values, right? So for instance, you look at OpenSea, you know, there was a lot of debate about these royalties and they were going back and forth. And while other competitors, you know, came out and basically sort of did sort of the sort of approach where they would sort of take creative royalties for market share, you know, OpenSea went out and basically had a discussion, had some thoughts of solution, and then it ultimately came out and said, you know, come what may, we're going to defend creator royalties and, you know, we're going to do what's right because that's why we're here. And you know, that's how it started, right? And, and, I think, and I think that's sort of a really important part to sort of make investments in, in, in companies and individuals that are value aligned. Because once you're value aligned, it's just so much easier to cooperate because even if you have differences, you have common ground. Right. Whereas if you frankly make an investment purely because you think it's going to make you a lot of money, but you may not agree with, you know, the founder's values or you may not agree with the way he does it. It's, it's a, it's a pathway of, of a lot of problems down the road because, because you won't, it's not just how you do it. It's also why you do it. Right. It's, it's going to be a big issue as we have seen as of late. Right. So I think, I think, um, I think, you know, the same was with Axie. So they believed in decentralization. They, many of them were, were actually CryptoKitty OG players. And they just, their initial business plan was, we're going to do what CryptoKitties didn't do, which is basically make a game. And, and you know, it had a breeding mechanism, but we're going to optimize it and make it a better experience and all that kind of stuff. That's how it started. And of course, as we all know with startups, they evolve, right? You know, the business plan that was set out in 2018, 2019 looks very, very different from what it is today um, because of all the needs that they had to have or the ecosystem as it grew. But principally speaking, to build open and decentralized is, uh, and, and to have this sort of Web3 ethos is the common spirit, shall we say, amongst many of those um, entrepreneurs. And of course, then you go to the next level stuff like, you know, you know, do you, are you capable? Do you know how to code? You know, 
you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, are you, you know, you know, the, the basic stuff obviously has to happen as well, but, but, you know, high level, you have to be value aligned. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I think that was, again, one of the questions is, you know, who, who should be interested in raising from Animoca brands? If you're not like a traditional VC, you know, what kind of entrepreneurs should be looking to Animoca to, um, to raise capital from in that regard? And it sounds well, like I mean, the value I, yeah, line, but exactly. yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, values aligned, very much values aligned. Um, but also, frankly, it does have to fit into the sort of digital property rights sort of um, mm. uh, focus for us, right? So, so for instance, you know, we would not normally be investing in DeFi protocols, for instance, right? It just it's you know it's 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 okay. Like we understand that they're valuable, but we typically wouldn't wouldn't be doing too much in that space unless we felt it could enhance the area of NFTs. Just because of the fact that first of all, there's a lot of other investors who know the space very well. Um, but more importantly, uh, if it doesn't add to that particular sort of network effect, then our portfolio and the ecosystem that we're building doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to have as natural a fit, right? Uh, which is why we make lots of investments in sort of NFT and you know, we're starting to move into sort of areas that do fashion or even in physical items. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like for instance, this example with the Revo, if, you know, all of the portfolios that have brands uh, or that have basically customers that have these NFTs that are branded, could potentially benefit from something mm. like this. And if this happens to be, you know, successful, it can lead the way for other companies to do something like that as well. You know, it doesn't have to end with, it doesn't just have to be bicycles, right? It's just an example of how else you can extend that. So we're looking at all ways in which we can sort of extend those audiences. Sure. And then the brands thing. Um, interesting because I actually was chatting with um, Ori Mashand, um, who's the CEO of Overwolf, um, and he runs mm. in a very like large modding repository um, and toolings for creators to basically build um, either in-game mods or kind of like deck trackers or things like that on top of their games. And that's obviously another kind of way that we could think about building the metaverse. And you guys obviously have, you know, brands is literally in the name of Animoca Brands. How do you view... IP um, in this mm. in in your business and part and you guys have partnered with so many brands like Snoop Dogg and Walking Dead or celebrity personas. Right. Um, why do you think that this partnership is important um, to building out Web three um, the Web three ecosystem? Well, you know, one of the thesis points is basically anything that helps build network effects for NFTs and and uh, as in digital property rights and bringing building green brands is basically a way in which we can sort of construct and add to these network effects. After all. If a celebrity or a big brand sort of issues something, then you tap into their audiences and they learn about this and so that they onboard. So that's, that's one natural thing. And of course, it helps business, can generate revenues and, and so forth. I think the very important part, and that's sort of an early lesson that we learned as well, is that um, the property rights that go with it need to come with tr- a, a true property rights, right? Which is why we also, uh, you know, like metaverse first brands, because that's typically embedded in the rights of those agreements. As in when I buy a you know a, a board ape or a cool cat uh, or sort of you know have a coda for instance, these are things that actually uh, show that I actually own something that I can then commercialize myself and use in different ways. And again, why that's powerful is that now you've decentralized the construction of network effects, right? That's why you can have someone doing a coffee shop with board apes or someone basically you know basically launching you know launching uh, sort of a clothing line or you know, basically sports shoes or, you know, even jewelry, for instance, because I no longer need to go to, you know, the company and seek a licensing agreement and go and negotiate all kinds of stuff. I just go to one of the owners and say, I like your ape or I like your cat and I want to do a business with that. 
um, or I want to do a good business with you know thirty cats or thirty apes, right? So so that's kind of what we're excited about. But the, the third sort of the the big brands out there that build experience on this, it goes two ways, right? Because it's not only you know oh how do we leverage them so they can bring in customers? Actually, they benefit from this. You know, when HSBC built an experience on the sandbox outside of the media brand. Um, a lot of customers inside HSBC that were younger were like, oh, HSBC, you're building something in the metaverse. That's kind of hip. And I didn't know, I didn't know that you could actually do that. And uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in this. And it's a way of activating, you know, that audience back into them as well. You know, Sandbox, you know, the, the average landowner's wallet is anywhere between half a million to $2 million worth of value, you know, in, in their sort of public wallets that we can see, you know, that, that owns land in Sandbox. I mean, that is essentially an ultra high net worth uh, sort of uh, well, high net worth individual from a private banking perspective. So then when you look at it from that perspective, it starts to make sense for luxury brands to be on Sandbox, for HSBC and Standard Chartered and financial institutions to be on Sandbox, because these are actually your customer profiles, but with one difference. Before, these institutions would guard those profiles because they were exclusive to them. Now it's on chain. So if I'm building on Sandbox, not only do I address them and say I'm serious, I also know that it's real because, yes, they do have this value. And therefore, you know, when I go and launch the right type of products, then I will get basically the right kind of demand and the right kind of success that I'm looking for. As opposed to just randomly putting it on a website and just saying, let's go and hope it does well or just maintain your own customers. Because, again, the customer base is, in this case, is shared as a platform. So... So that, uh, that sort of benefit then sort of starts to sort of compound on each, each other because the idea of, you know, these construction of network effects is that with digital property rights, we are, should be in a position where you can start compounding these network effects basically in an accelerated manner. And, you know, one network effect, two network effects, and then suddenly it's four network effects, and then it's eight network effects, and then they all start to sort of accumulate and grow. And we've seen this, right, the, the, the sort of most successful NFT projects actually have very, very strong network effects. And, I, and not, I don't mean that just in utility, but also in brand, right? Everything you buy physically is actually a virtual network effect. You know, you may choose to buy this shoe or this car, not because it has the best stats, but because of the fact that this is, you know, this celebrity or your friends have it, or your community has it, or the community you used to be has it, right? You know, why do we choose to buy a Tesla versus another energy-friendly car, for instance? You know, how much of that sort of pricing arbitrage comes from its utility? Probably almost nothing, right? <laughs> the, the, it comes from branding. And what is branding? Branding is a network effect that is virtual. So, so I think, um, I think that's how we think about this, this space broadly. And brands basically bring in these, uh, these network effects. Hmm. So critical, um, in a way. Yes. And I think this is also why some of the, more corporate-generated metaverses, um, so maybe something like Meta's metaverse, I am a little bit more bearish on versus even the Epic strategy because you want to have brands that come from the real world or maybe the physical world in your world, yes. not the real world, but the physical world that you're familiar with that are part of your identity. And to have those things in the digital universe makes a lot of sense. And so um, in that regard, I, I, I wanted to sort of pivot from the, but through the through the lens of, of of IP to sort of how Animoca thinks about markets and just in general, right? And so mm. a lot of the success that 
crypto has seen, especially in the gaming scene, has probably been in East Asian societies more so than the West, right? And as a half Japanese person who's played a ton of JRPGs in their life, I think that there's actually something that's inextricably intertwined between perhaps the way that the cultures perceive digital collectibles um, and how that's also potentially moving adoption a little bit faster. I'll just take an example. Um, you know, I know Square Enix is building their own blockchains, Oasis, right? And, you know, Final Fantasy has had digital and physical collectibles attached to one another for forever. Like you buy the collector's edition and you get the cloud statue and the cloud statue, when you get it in the box, has another code. And this code gets you the DLC for, I don't know, Crisis Core or something like that, right? And so do you, do you see that a little bit in, when, in, in, when in the investing scene in the markets about maybe there's a higher consumer predilection for that adoption in Asia versus the West? Because there's such oh, a yes. demonization um, so, of this industry in the West from amongst the gaming community. Yeah, right? so, so, so just to sort of, um, sort of, uh, sort of uh, zoom in a little bit. So first of all, I don't think any gamer in the world really, given the choice, is against ownership. In fact, I would argue that, you know, also the gamers in the West would say, given the choice between ownership and not owning, they would say, well, of course we should own it, mm-hmm. right? I don't think anyone's like, I'm happy to rent because I don't even think that they believe what they're doing is renting. I think the, the, the issue between what's happening in Asia and the U.S. has to do with the fear of the over-commercialization and over of it. So the, and, and you can see this also in gameplay styles. So for instance, in game design, you know, things like pay to win, for instance, is actually not considered distasteful in Asia. In fact, pay to win was very common, right? In terms of you pay for this and you get this Monster experience. strike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Uh, and, and it's very, very, very prevalent in, in Korean and Chinese games. Whereas in the West, for instance, really, you know, it was much more egalitarian. You can buy the skin and it looks cool, but no, 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 it's all skill-based and you're all supposed to do the same thing. But you know what's interesting, right? That actually leads to a different element, right? The, the level of cheating that happens, for instance, in those type of skill-based games is very, very high. I mean, you know, you just go on YouTube and all the kids see all the scandalous sort of, uh, sort of, you know, influencers that are basically pretending they're doing it and they're actually all using aimbots and whatever. But, but, but the point is, is that, that because it's so heavily skill-based, actually what's happened is that the value has gone into a different industry, which is like a side industry, like people carrying you, for instance, or playing your accounts for the status. So actually, in reality, it's a kind of different kind of pay-to-win but it's it's still it's still there. It's just basically circum sort of circumventing the system in this attempt to basically try to make it as you know, supposedly fair as possible, right? But actually, this ends up becoming a little bit of a death spiral as well, because then what happens in these games, you know, especially in the latter half of the cycle, and which is where what game designers always struggle with is, okay, so now you have this core of people who are really good at the game, who to basically just crush every newbie that comes in <laughs> and mm. just abuses them, and then what happens is that games often die. Because there's no way for them to catch up if they wanted to, as an example. But but that's not really what blockchain solves here per se. I think what blockchain really does here is it, it, it opens up the financial infrastructure um, that actually is already underpinning the gaming industry and lets third-party intermediaries come into this. So I think this is the problem. Uh, this is the, the big difference here in misunderstanding. So when people look at Axie, for instance, and they say, oh, Axie, it's a Ponzi, you know, whatever, you know, it doesn't work, right? Because, you know, if people don't put in any more money in the system, then, you know, obviously the whole thing will collapse and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Actually, Axie is doing pretty well still relative to many other game companies its size, right? But, but I would say that the misunderstanding is that when you look at the gaming industry, which, you know, is a $200 billion industry, there are elements in the gaming industry 
that actually are being siphoned out because we don't see it as a gamer. So for instance, I mean, you know this, right? Um, probably 50% to two thirds of what you make as a profit as a game company goes into user acquisition. In fact, this year alone, the forecast is that $110 billion will go into app install. Uh, it, goes, it will be spent on app install, um, which is basically mostly going to Apple, Google, and Facebook. How much of that money actually goes back into the gaming industry? Close to zero. <laughs> right. Sure. right. So that's a highly extractive tax. Then you have the platform fees, the 30%, right? Yes. So when you, when you <laughs> shave all, and so, so unless you're Activision or you have a big enough network effect of your own right. and you have the capital power to build it, as an indie game developer, you're toast, yep. you know, which is the reason what we have today, sort of indie game developers are always struggling because they can't pay those kind of extractive tax. It's actually the equivalent of a, um, it's actually equivalent of an oppressive tax regime. But of course, you know, when you calculate it backwards, you don't see it in its initial, but then when you just deduct it, actually, anyone in the game industry will, will tell you how much is spending on all these things. And what Web3 and blockchain gaming really does is it opens up sort of that value, and then you can choose as an intermediary to participate in it, and you can give the value to the players first. So this movement, for instance, that, you know, it started with Phantom Galaxies, but many other companies are doing this as well, is, you know, this whole sort of, you know, play to own, or, or some people call it free to own, for instance. You start the game, and you actually get some free NFTs to start with. Actually, that's user acquisition, right? Yep. And the difference about this user acquisition cost is it goes to the value to the player. How much of that value of what the player might generate from, you know, having received free assets will go back into the game is far, far greater than giving it to Apple or to Facebook or Google, who will give nothing back into the ecosystem. They're just taking it out and, you know, putting it in, and then banking it in Ireland. Sure. So, so because the gamers don't understand that financial layer, they, they are, you know, and they only see something like a board ape and they go, oh my goodness, am I going to be spending this kind of money so that I can continue playing games? It terrifies them. And so they're against that. But I think there's another thing, and this is more prevalent, I think, in America than even in Europe, uh, although um, I would say, and that is sort of youth in general. I mean, if you look at the latest sort of polls, for instance, actually is, is, is veering anti-capitalist in America. They actually are generally more sort of, they're leaning socialist, or in some cases, very pro-socialist, uh, which sort of explains things like the rise of Bernie Sanders and so forth. Um, and so what does crypto represent? And by definition, NFTs, basically digital capitalism. And by introducing this kind of digital capitalism in this digital world, I reject that because capitalism hasn't worked for me for the last 20 or 30 years anyway, right? I mean, young people that graduate, you know, um, not in technology, are basically, you know, uh, looking at this and saying, how can I afford any of this? In contrast, in Asia, even though there's also inequity, capitalism has worked quite well. You know, certainly from my parents' generation, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> who had nothing, right? Uh, and and came from an environment where there wasn't even any property rights. I look at, for instance, South Korea. Uh, four decades ago, military dictatorship, right? Actually, ability to own your property rights was established, I think, in the. Uh, was it, maybe it was in the 90s, right? I mean, it was something, or, or, or late 80s, it was very recent in, in living memory, whereas every American basically had, you know, property rights, you know, basically since, since, since forever, right? Hundreds of years in which they actually um, was protected. So the American dream is, is much more alive and well in Asia than it is in America. So I think part of that rejection, particularly with the gaming community we see, is really a rejection of capitalism or digital capitalism in this case, and it's veering over. But as a result, to your point, it's not just that Asian 
Asian gamers are more receptive to it because there's a lot of American gamers who are also receptive to it. Um, it's also the fact that uh, Asian game studios are free to enter the space without a backlash. When you look at Korea, every major Korean company is able to talk about blockchain and do something in, in Web3. Whether it's fully Web3 or not, they can discuss it openly. Whether it's Square Enix, whether it's Crafton, the creators of PUBG, right? Or Netmarble or Nexon, right? They are all free to do it. Whereas in America, you know, EA had to, had to have a full-scale retreat after they talked about it, right? Or, you know, Ubisoft, who are strong believers in this and also our shareholders, but they're always getting pushback. And I really feel sorry for these guys because, you know, they, they, they actually want to do something good for the industry and for the gamers, but they're being pushed back because people don't understand what it really means for them. Yeah, it's really interesting that you point that out. Now that I'm thinking about it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that there is such a backlash, I think, in the West, because in America, we like love to own our stuff. We're like yes. all for our own rights. We're like all for like, this is mine. You can't take it away from me. And I think that the nature of the decentralized technology is that. But I read this it's a article yes. the other day that was the difference between kind of like the money crypto and the tech crypto. And I think it's the money crypto that's bleeding into the tech crypto. And like the tech crypto is like the decentralized, the digital property, whatever, the money crypto is like the um you know the ftx and the high volume trading Correct. and the capitalism Correct. that yes. you're talking about right. where yes. like basically honestly only the rich people can really afford to hold lots of ethereum because ethereum is so expensive right exactly and, and they don't want and they don't want wall street in their games which by the way i accept i'm like this is fine we don't none of us want you know wall street in the games but that doesn't mean that digital ownership is is the cause of it right and right. and and the and so the point though is that when you open up financial infrastructure for everyone to see. The intermediaries come in and create services, and some of it may be speculative, but you can't necessarily stop it because that actually is part of the reason why network effects get constructed. So for instance, the paradigm for Axie wasn't play to earn, right? Actually, technically, they didn't even invent that. It was YGG that invented it. Why did they create that play to earn system that worked so well for them? Actually, is because of the fact that you could own an Axie. So YDG owned the Axie and basically created this Uber-like system, this gaming guild system, that then basically sort of proliferated uh, this ability for people to basically create this rental play-to-earn mechanism. You could earn from Axie and you could own, yes, that's true, but actually what made it big was the guilds. And if it wasn't for the ability to own these assets, uh, for YDG or any guild to own an asset and create their sort of scholar program, then the system would have never been possible. So ownership is the foundation of this. But ownership is also the foundation for other things. For instance, like in digital fashion, it could be something that you want to show. It could be a signal. It could be a symbol. Or, you know, it could be many things. It doesn't necessarily just have to be about money. But, you know, that's what people see initially, uh, at least in the West, many of them. And that, con that is what concerns them. But at the end of the day, to your point, you know, if you owe them, would you rather rent for the rest of your life than where you live? Or would you like to own it? You know, everyone will obviously say, of course I want to own it, right? Um, and so we're we're coming up on probably the last couple of minutes, and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions that are maybe more anchored in the in the pragmatic. But you know, sure. you're a crypto investor and a and a founder of a um, you know studio that also has an operating arm, but also invests off a of balance sheet. Like you said, what do you think makes a good um, crypto and blockchain investor in today's day and age, where everybody <laughs> is sort of like chomping at the bit trying to figure this? Um, hubbub I, out. Yeah. So I, I mean, I can't speak for others. So I'll just speak in terms of how we think of it. And I suppose one could all say that the jury is still out as to our approach, because I think we are fairly unique in that way. 
but you know, let me take it first from the corporate lens perspective, right? Which is sort of the sort of you know, um, as an institution that is pri actually primarily an operating um, entity. I actually think it's wrong for large corporates uh, not to invest back in the ecosystem that they're building. Right? If you think about it, the traditional mechanism of corporations have been value extractive for the most part. Yes, they provide value back in the ecosystem by the products and services they offer. But the profits that they generate, how much of that actually goes back into investing back into the very ecosystem that they build? Give an example. If you took a single digit percentage of just the cash reserves that are really not doing much other than, you know, these are create financial returns for Apple and Facebook, right? And just took that, or just take Apple, right? And just take a single, single digit percentile of that and made it into a fund for startups that were building into the Apple ecosystem, as an example, right? That would be bigger than probably any fund in the world, right? It'd certainly be bigger than A16Z and, and what we do and maybe Bessemer and even Sequoia combined because it would be in the tens of billions of dollars, right? So, so, and what would happen to that ecosystem when they would actually reinvest in that and, and reinvest that way, right? Now, of course, they don't do that and that's not part of their charter. And that's the point here, right? The point is really that, you know, we, we do believe that in order to further our growth, we can only do so by reinvesting it back into the ecosystem, which means we may invest differently when the market matures, but we still have to continue to reinvest. To us, it's almost like a, 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 I wouldn't say it's a tax, but it's a way in which we further this, particularly when we believe that there's a shared network effect. It may make sense that when you think of a zero-sum outcome, that you want to hoard the cash because you don't want to give it to others and therefore you want to control it. But if you believe that this is going to be, not, it's not going to be this way, then it doesn't make sense to, to do that. You, you have to sort of build, uh, build, uh, build together. So that's, that's sort of a, a core part of our philosophy. And therefore, as a result, the way that we invest in the ecosystem comes from that. I think intrinsically, many people actually want to build this way, I think, because nobody wants to necessarily sort of have sharp elbows. Some people do, but I think most people like to build collaboratively. But I think the models themselves actually haven't been conducive to this. When you look at some of the excesses, particularly that's happened not just in our industry, but you know, recently in our industry, but you know, broadly speaking, in the past, whether you look at something like an Enron, for instance, or you know, all the other sort of um, sort of uh, or Lehman Brothers, for instance, they all really fell apart because of this attempt to basically do a winner-takes-all approach. And in so doing, actually end up creating sort of the scorched earth as part of this and setting back industries uh, in, in really, really bad ways. You know, I mean, if you think about sort of, you know, one of the potential sort of, uh, sort of uh, setbacks that this does is it actually hurts everyone. It doesn't just hurt, you know, sort of, you know, the perpetrators. It actually hurts every single person and all the innocent bystanders as a result, whether it's aggressive regulation, whether it's, uh, whether it's you know, for customers, sort of consumer confidence, whether it's whatever it is, it ends up basically creating a negative outcome. And so if you create this in a more balanced way, we think uh, that this is an important part. And this also comes to another perspective that we take, which is that you know, we believe more in a kind of stakeholder capitalism, because if you think about digital asset ownership, all of our customers are in fact owners, right? So that's very different. And therefore, we have a relationship with the customers, which is much more directly sort of connected to us. And so everything we're building, both in the investing side, as well as in the sort of you know, operating side, is one where we're basically really creating a giant stakeholder ecosystem, where we're all participating jointly in you know, its benefits and its negatives, right? Uh, which is very different from, say, um, again, the classic form of shareholder capitalism, where at the end, uh, you know, management and the shareholders, which is typically a minority of the group, would benefit, and therefore always act in the interest of that, which I think is maybe good in initial growth, but always ends up somehow having a long-term problem 
because then it's always value extractive and somehow becomes adversarial with your customer, right? Like for instance, when Facebook first started out, it didn't expect to be where it is today, where it actually was a very collaborative network effect and building together. And now its relationship with its customers is adversarial because the customers don't have a stake in Facebook's success, right? Uh, so, so the lens that we take, and I think this is important, at least we think it's important from, from a blockchain investor perspective is that, you know, to look at everything from uh, a sort of uh, economic perspective. In other words, we like to think of, you know, metaverses, for instance, in GDP. We look at its economic sort of growth potential. We look at the GDP growth and sort of, you know, the number of jobs that might happen from it or the number of sort of economic growth that can happen. And then we measure it that way uh, in terms of potential, as opposed to saying, what is the PNL of a project? Because uh, I think if you just focus entirely on how much profit it can generate, uh, which is the sustainable part, then I think we have a problem in terms of, you know, how much value you extract out of this and you create some of these problems we've been recently seeing. Um, but I would also say that we don't, I think a lot of um, investors don't share our perspective, right? Um, and, you know, the criticism is, well, isn't this a bit like spray and pray? Aren't you just investing in everything and just seeing how it goes and, you know, good luck and whatever. And, you know, our measure, and this is why I think the operating side is so important, is that if we make a million dollar investment in a small startup, and it can generate $10 million of economic activity within our ecosystem as well as in our operating businesses, then we've already won. We've already gained something as a whole. Whether that business ends up returning us that $1 million is no longer as important, right? And, and I also feel that if you're a VC and you can allocate a small percentage of your fund into this kind of investing as opposed to into just trying to find the big winner, for instance, where you can diversify for something that has a macro effect that will benefit the industry that you're building anyway. By the way, I think this applies to everything. I don't think it has to be Web3. It could be AI or it's kind of broad or like healthcare or even the app ecosystem, right? Then I think generally speaking, you'll build a healthier ecosystem by mm. putting back because there's such a concentration of wealth that happens. You know, it's not just in, in tech. I mean, it's also in VC investing. The concentration of returns that you're seeing with VC returns are so outsized. And how much of that comes back into the broader ecosystem? The answer is almost nothing. I mean, you know, like for instance, I mean, Sequoia is one of our investors and, and they've been great investors and it's sad to see what happened with FTX. You know, they wrote off their investment and you know, the, the byline of it was, it's too bad and you know, we're really sorry, um, but it had no impact on our fund because everything else is doing great, right? And, 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 uh, and, and it's astounding if you think about it, right? So something of that scale to have basically minimal effect on the balance sheet of these of these investment investors because they've invested so successfully how much of that value actually goes back into the very ecosystem that's helped build it to this point including the consumers that have built it right and so that, i think that's the other thing that attracts us so much about sort of web3 and and blockchain so that's that's really how we think about it got it yeah it's definitely um i guess maybe from a venture side you might say this is a magnanimous form of investing um but it is. Uh... I don't agree, though, because I think that if you so I don't agree with that because this magnanimous form of investing builds incredible goodwill, so-called magnanimous, um, and also builds a healthy ecosystem around you and the ability to participate in broader mm. networks. I think. I mean, if you look at Animoca Brands, we were really in investing. We're not even a VC, right? If you think about it, right? We're, we're not a fund, so we we haven't raised a fund really to do that kind of stuff. It comes out of our balance sheet. And therefore, we wouldn't even necessarily show up in VC cap tables, but somehow we do because we're so prolific. But the amount of deal flow we get, the attention that we get today in a very short period of time, if you think about it, didn't come 
because we made one or two outsized bets. In fact, I would argue that many of these investors have done, you know, arguably much better in terms of returns of finding the one or two winners, right? If you concentrated all your money into OpenSea, you, you probably have better returns than us putting it in all these companies. But instead, we have a lot of goodwill and we have a reputation that we've built because of our style of investing, because of our philosophy. And I think that is, um, that is something that if more VCs did it, actually, I think it would benefit them, not just the ecosystem, but themselves more as opposed to trying to just uh, back, you know, the one or two horses. Yeah. You guys are definitely a little bit more similar to maybe like a CVC um, than a VC, but probably still not exactly the same as a CVC yes. either. Yeah. Um, but this has been such a pleasure. Um, and thank, thank you, you so much for sharing your opinions and thoughts and the story of the foundation of um, Animoca Brands. Truly, what an incredible journey. Um, just the happenstance of the crypto kitties in the same office, it kills, <laughs> it kills yeah. me. Um, but it's amazing to hear your perspectives on digital property rights and, and the future of kind of, of building up building up that, that digital legal ecosystem and the metaverse. Um, so you've been a fantastic guest and it's been awesome chatting with you. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. And then this concludes our uh, episode on uh, the Crypto Corner and I'll see you in two weeks. Awesome.